Hello, I'm James Saunders. And I'm Jessica Powers. Welcome to the first episode of Series 2 of Brief Tapes. Thank you to all of our listeners to date. We really appreciate your very kind feedback and we hope that you'll continue to find this podcast an informal yet informative way of keeping up to date with legal and procedural issues. Yes, what started as a lockdown whim looks likely to become a permanent fixture. James, you've bought a podcasting microphone, so there's really no going back now. This series, we plan to look at the future of the high street from a property and insolvency law perspective, scams and cryptocurrency, a veritable smorgasbord of topics. But first, since, to quote Benjamin Franklin, in this world nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes, we will discuss the issues which arise when a party to prospective or extant litigation dies. The logical place to start is with the death of a prospective claimant before any proceedings are issued. Who can sue in place of the deceased? Executors, i.e. personal representative named in the deceased's will, derive their title from the will. However, they can only prove that title by obtaining a grant of probate. So, in principle, an executor can issue proceedings in a representative capacity, but must indicate on the claim form that they are doing so in accordance with CPR Rule 16.23. However, the issue is that unless the defendant admits that the executor has that capacity to sue, the executor cannot proceed because they cannot prove that they have the relevant title. In practice, the court will usually stay the proceedings until a grant of probate has been issued. The position is obviously different with administrators, i.e. personal representatives who are appointed in a case where there is no will or where the executors named in the will cannot act. Administrators don't have title to sue until letters of administration are taken out. So if administrators have already commenced proceedings before they obtain the grant, then the proceedings are an incurable nullity, even if they later go on to obtain a grant. There is a slightly dubious decision of the High Court, Mirza and Al-Bajo, which held that the court's powers to give permission for amendments to statements of case can be used to cure defects in a claimant's title to sue. But that decision appears to run contrary to Court of Appeal and subsequent High Court decisions. We should also briefly mention CPR Rule 19.81 at this stage although we will come back to this rule at a later point in the podcast. That rule gives the court the power to order that a claim proceed in the absence of a person representing the deceased's estate, or that a person be appointed to represent the estate where a person who had an interest in the claim had died and has no personal representative. The Court of Appeal held in the case of Milburn, Snell and Evans that this rule cannot be used to revive a claim which is a nullity by circumventing the need for a personal representative to have title to sue at the time of issuing the claim. One interesting point in the case of administrators is that the question of the nullity or otherwise of the proceedings is distinct from the question of whether the administrators can sue in respect of events taking place between the death and the grant. The so-called notion of relation back allows certain actions to be maintained in the period when no grant has issued. One example is that an administrator can recover in trespass or for wrongful interference with goods against a wrongdoer who has seized or converted goods before the grant. The key test is whether the relation back is for the benefit of the estate. A short and connected point concerns some useful forms of limited grant, which can be of assistance in the interim period between death and the appointment of a personal representative, or confirmation of their status, such as when a will is being disputed. In those circumstances, prospective PRs may not wish to act, but estate assets may need to be administered or preserved. 
One option is to use Section 117 of the Senior Courts Act 1981, which provides for grants to administrators pending suit where a will is challenged or proceedings are on foot for the revocation of a grant. An alternative form of grant is known as a grant ad collegenda bona, which is designed to protect elements of an estate where they may be endangered by a delay in administration. Flipping to the other side of proceedings then, what happens if a defendant dies before proceedings are issued? Well, thankfully, the position is much simpler thanks to CPR Rule 19.82 and 3, which are helpfully prescriptive. If a grant of probate or administration has been made, then the claim must be brought against the personal representatives of the deceased. If not, the claim must be brought against the estate of the deceased, and the claimant must apply to the court for an order appointing a person to represent the estate of the deceased in the claim. In the event that the claimant mistakenly issues against the personal representatives before the grant of probate or administration, or against a person who was in fact dead when the claim was issued, then the claim is automatically treated as having been brought against the estate of the deceased. Although not technically a death, if a company has been dissolved or struck off prior to issuing of proceedings, the court may stay proceedings pending an application to restore the company to the register. In the case of Jodrell and Peaktone Limited, the Court of Appeal held that Section 1032.1 of the Companies Act 2006 operates to retrospectively validate an action commenced by or against a company whilst it was dissolved or struck off. Moving then to look at the position if a party dies after the commencement of proceedings, so long as the cause of action survives, litigation which is on foot does not abate. In a case where the deceased has personal representatives, then they will need to be joined as parties to the proceedings using the usual procedure under CPR Rule 19.4 for joinder of parties. If the deceased doesn't have personal representatives, then CPR Rule 19.81, our old favourite at this point, comes into play. As we have already briefly mentioned, CPR 19.81 gives the court two options. It can allow the claim to proceed without the estate of the deceased being represented, or alternatively, it can appoint someone to represent the estate. If the court does so, then any judgment or order made or given is binding on the estate of the deceased, pursuant to CPR Rule 19.85. Unsurprisingly, orders of the first kind are fairly rare and will likely only be appropriate if there are other parties to the proceedings with the same interest as the deceased, and if the delay and expense of appointing a representative would be disproportionate. A related issue is what is the position of a solicitor whose client dies either before or after the commencement of litigation. There are some very old cases from the 1800s which make clear that a solicitor's retainer is determined by the death of their client. And that of course is because the relationship of agency is a personal one and that must come to an end when there is no principal for whom the agent can act. But what if, as can so often be the case, the solicitor has no notice of their client's death? Unlike in the USA, where the situation is dealt with in legislation, there's no clear English authority to the effect that actual authority is not terminated until an agent knows of their principal's death. However, the general position is that actual authority does not terminate until an agent knows of the termination, by whatever means that may be. Whether constructive knowledge, on the other hand, is sufficient is also not entirely clear. Although there's a Canadian authority, Reed Parks, which held that a solicitor's authority was determined by reason of constructive knowledge of their client's insanity. It was established by the decision in Drew and Nunn that there is no automatic transferal of the warrant of authority from the deceased party to their estate. 
So once the client has died, that is the end of the solicitor's authority to act. The personal representatives of the deceased do not become the solicitor's client, just as, for example, a trustee in bankruptcy would not automatically become the client of a solicitor's acting for a person who was made bankrupt. The actual dissolution of a corporate litigant appears to be analogous to the death of a person, but there's surprisingly little authority on the point. It was assumed by all in the case of Sultan and New Beeston Cycle Company that the defendant company's solicitor's authority terminated when the company was dissolved. As a note of warning, in Young and Toynbee, a case from the early 1900s, a solicitor who took steps in litigation on behalf of a client who had, unbeknownst to him, become mentally incapable, was ordered to pay the other side's costs. A similar thing occurred in the case James has just mentioned, Sultan and New Beeston Cycle Company, in respect of the costs incurred after the date of dissolution of the company. As a final point, I'll highlight one extremely bizarre example of what can go wrong in a case where a party to litigation dies. In Amatharaja and White, the court was faced with an appeal in a boundary dispute. Extraordinarily, Mr White was named as the first claimant despite having died over a year before the claim was issued. At the trial, no one mentioned that Mr White had died, even though all the parties and their representatives were well aware of the fact, apart from counsel for the claimants. A subsequent application to strike out the proceedings as a nullity failed because two of the claimants were alive at the time of issue. One of the grounds upon which the defendants appealed was that the claimants' lawyers had misled the court and committed an abusive process. That ground of appeal failed, with the court describing the circumstances as bizarre and a very unfortunate series of events. The key lesson, I think, always check if your client's still alive. But it is amazing that this case was only heard this year, with events happening in 2017 onwards. But there we go. So the next issue, chronologically, is that of enforcement where a defendant has died post-judgment. In CPR Rule 83.23c, um, there is a requirement that a claimant obtain the court's permission to issue a writ or warrant of control, a writ of execution, a warrant of delivery, or a warrant of possession, where the judgment or order is against the assets of a deceased person coming into the hands of their personal representatives after the date of the judgment or order. The application for permission can be made without notice unless the court directs otherwise. It appears unlikely that the court can grant a charging order against a deceased's personal representatives unless some kind of judgment is first obtained against those personal representatives. The point was considered in the fairly old case of Stewart and Rhodes in respect of Section 14 of the Judgments Act 1838, the predecessor to Section 1 of the Charging Orders Act 1979. It was held in that case that permission to issue execution against a personal representative, now under the CPR provision which Jessica's just mentioned, does not operate as a judgment against the executor. Turning then to the position where a debtor is insolvent, the current view appears to be that personal representatives are not able to propose an individual voluntary arrangement to a deceased debtor's creditors. The situation where a debtor has obtained an interim order under Section 252 of the Insolvency Act, which protects them from their creditors pending the proposal of an IVA, is expressly dealt with in the Administration of Insolvent Estates of Deceased Persons Order 1986, which James and I will forthwith refer to as the order. If the debtor dies before delivering the IVA proposal to the nominee, then the nominee must inform the court and the interim order will be discharged. If the proposal has been delivered and the debtor dies before the meeting of creditors, then either no meeting should be summoned or if the summons has already been sent out, then it should be cancelled. 
if an IVA is approved at a meeting of creditors and the debtor subsequently dies, it also appears to be that the IVA is brought to an end, and that's the case regardless of whether an interim order has been made. If a debtor dies after applying for their own bankruptcy, the proceedings continue as if they were still alive. Similarly, if a debtor dies after presentation of a bankruptcy petition, the proceedings continue as if they were alive, unless the court orders otherwise. The court can order that the petition be served on the personal representatives if it has not yet been served. If the debtor dies after service of the petition, then CPR Rule 19.81 comes back into play since the CPR are imported directly into the insolvent rules. Where a bankruptcy order is made before or after a debtor dies, the process of proving debts is the same as if the bankrupt were alive. The only difference is that the order of priority of debts is altered slightly so that reasonable funeral and testamentary expenses have priority over preferential debts. Bankruptcy is still an option for a creditor if the debtor has died before proceedings are commenced, but a creditor must, instead of a bankruptcy order, seek an insolvency administration order under the order. Proceedings are commenced by presenting a petition, and there are various forms of petition in the schedules to the order. The relevant one for a creditor is Form 1 in Schedule 3. The petition looks pretty similar to a bankruptcy petition, but includes obvious additional details such as the date of death of the debtor and details of their will and personal representatives. Also worth noting that there is no requirement to serve a statutory demand before presenting an insolvency administration order petition. It is important to note that an insolvency administration petition cannot be presented if proceedings have already been commenced in any court for the administration of the deceased debtor's estate. There is, however, scope for a creditor to apply to the court dealing with probate or the administration action for an order transferring those proceedings to the bankruptcy court. So what is the test for making an insolvency administration order? Well, the court may make one if it's satisfied that, firstly, the debt or one of the debts in respect of which the petition was presented is a debt which, having been payable at the date of the petition or having since become payable, has neither been paid nor secured nor compounded for, or which has no reasonable prospect of being able to be paid when it falls due. And secondly, there is a reasonable probability that the estate will be insolvent. Once an insolvency administration order is made, creditors must prove their debts in the usual way. The trustee also has all the normal powers in respect of impugning antecedent transactions and an additional power under Section 421A of the Insolvency Act, requiring a surviving joint tenant to compensate the estate for the value lost upon the passing of jointly owned property under the right of survivorship. Yeah, I had forgotten that section existed, but did a pro bono advice two weeks ago where they had gone under that section. I dealt with a case where an insolvency administration order was mistakenly made by the court. The debtor had died after presentation and service of the bankruptcy petition, and so a bankruptcy order should have been made rather than the insolvency administration order. The course the trustees took was simply to apply for an order varying the insolvency administration order under Section 375 of the Insolvency Act to turn it into a bankruptcy order, and the court was happy to do so. The judge expressed some concern about whether anything that the trustees had done under the insolvency administration order would be affected by that order being varied to make it a bankruptcy order. And so there were various provisions that went into the order basically to protect the position of the trustees. 
The equivalent in corporate insolvency is, of course, seeking the double-barreled order against a company which is dissolved or struck off. Now, that moniker confuses many a baby barrister attending the winding-up list for the first time, but simply refers to an order which both restores a company to the register and then winds that company up. The winding-up petition must state that the company has been dissolved or struck off and include in the prayer a request that an order be made restoring it to the register. Unless the petition is being presented by a minister or a government department such as HMRC, the petitioning creditor will need to file evidence of service of the petition on the government legal department or solicitor for the Duchy of Lancaster or the Duchy of Cornwall as appropriate, appending a bona vacantia waiver letter. One point which I always check in these circumstances is whether another company has been incorporated with the same name in the meantime, and I have seen this happen on a couple of occasions. The approach I took and which the court agreed with is that an order should be made by the court restoring the company to the register with its company number as its name pursuant to the provisions of section 1033 of the Companies Act 2006. Another issue which I know you had to grapple with recently Jess is the standing of the former directors of a dissolved or struck off company to oppose a winding up petition. Yes thank you James you know that's a sore point as I couldn't find an authoritative answer to that question. My experience, though, is that in practice, the court will hear from former directors without objection. And there was a recent decision, uh, Fakri and Pagden, which held that former members and former liquidators have standing to bring or oppose restoration applications. And so the practice of hearing from former directors seems similarly sensible. Talking of things that I have had to grapple with recently, another interesting issue in this context is what happens when a sole director shareholder dies and the company's articles of association don't give their executors powers to appoint directors. One would think it might be a fairly rare occurrence, but there have been two reported decisions on this point in the last few years and I was recently faced with that scenario twice in one week. The problem doesn't generally arise for companies incorporated more recently, as Article 17.2 of the current version of the Model Articles provides that the personal representatives of a company without shareholders or directors as a result of death have the right to appoint directors. However, if there's no such power in the Articles, the company can find itself completely rudderless. Personal representatives may have title to the shares, but they're not members of the company because their names have not been entered into the register of members, and there is no one who can do so. Without members, no directors can be appointed. The solution is found in section 125 of the Companies Act 2006. That section enables the court to rectify the register of members where someone's name is entered in or omitted from the register without sufficient cause, or where there is default or unnecessary delay in entering on the register the fact of someone ceasing to be a member. The transmission of shares provisions in the old model articles provide that personal representatives shall be recognised as having title to the shares and having the rights to which they would have been entitled if they were the holder of the shares. Of course, as we've already explained, an executor will also derive title to the shares under the will upon the deceased's death. Executors and administrators who have obtained letters of administration therefore have standing to make an application for rectification. It was held in Re Lancashire Cleaning Services Limited that executors can be registered as shareholders and bring proceedings for rectification before they have obtained a grant of probate. His Honour Judge Matthews went one step further last year in the case of Williams and Russell Price Farm Services Limited, holding that executors could obtain relief even before applying for probate. 
However, he did require the executors to give certain undertakings to ensure that they applied for probate going forwards. Obviously, in order to obtain relief in those circumstances, I mean, before a grant of probate has even been applied for, there will be a need to demonstrate exceptional circumstances and urgency. But it shouldn't be too difficult to do so. One clear example is where a company is continuing to trade, but absent a director who is alive, its bank accounts are likely been frozen. Or another example might be where a company has liabilities to HMRC. In a case I dealt with recently, the urgency derived also from the fact that the statutory deadline for filing accounts was fast approaching. Thank you very much, Jess. That's a wrap for part one of our review of Death in Litigation. Next week, we'll be looking at common and problematic issues in contentious probate matters. Thank you as ever very much for listening and please feel free to rate our podcast if you have a moment. Goodbye.